Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Eli Villanueva and Natalie Iskovich share a passion for creating environments where students and community members feel comfortable expressing themselves creatively. This shared passion has brought them together as the dynamic duo leading our community opera, Moses. They talked to Tevin Fowler-Chapman, Vice President of LA Opera Connects, about their creative beginnings and what it takes to mount a community opera with hundreds of participants. Don't miss Moses, Saturday, March 11th. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hello and welcome to Behind the Curtain. I'm Tevin Fowler-Chapman, Vice President of LA Opera Connects, and I am pleased to have with me not one, but two guests who are very near and dear to my heart. We have Eli Villanueva and Natalie Iskovich, who are our director and choreographer, respectively, of our cathedral project this year, which is uh, Moses by Henry Mollicone. Welcome, guys. Thank uh, you. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Such a pleasure, actually, to be talking with you. That's so wonderful. Jumping right into it, just how both of you guys got started with LA Opera, working in opera, etc., just for anyone who does not know, Eli is our resident stage director for LA Opera Connects. So we have a lot of programs that require a lot of direction. People need to know where they're going, what they're singing, how they're singing it. And we cover a lot of ground in Los Angeles. And really at the center of it is this wonderful man, Eli. How did you get started with LA Opera? How did you find your way into LA Opera Connects? It was a long journey starting back in 1988. I was actually not doing music much at that point. It was my brother who was a baritone. He was an Adler Fellow in San Francisco Opera. And he set up an audition for me to work with L.A. Master Chorale and kind of forced me to go in there. I auditioned. I don't know why, but I auditioned, and they put me into the next season, which was in 1988-89. And at that time, Master Chorale was also involved in casting people from their choir into the LA Opera Chorus. So they put me in two productions. One of them was Otello in 89, and the other one was Tancredi in 89. And that was my first experience to come into Los Angeles opera. When I was a child, I was also in opera as one of the children running around in different places for La Boheme and Carmen and, and stuff like that. But it was back in 89 when I first started in the chorus. Llewellyn Crane, who was the education head for the department back in, what, 90, 92? asked me to come in to audition for one of the roles for their education programs in the high school. And that was probably around 94. Mm -hmm. And um, I was hired as the father in Journey to Cordoba. And so, first of all, they asked me to be the father of a 16-year-old, which I was a little bit concerned about because I looked 16 myself. <laughs> 
But um, I asked them if it would be all right if I tried some makeup, which they said, well, usually we don't use makeup in our productions. So, and uh, fortunately, I tried some very light makeup. I looked a little bit older. Some of my friends who saw me in the hallways in the music center actually came up to me rather concerned and saying, are, Eli, are you all right? You're not looking normal. <laughs> and uh, I told them that I had makeup on for an audition. I was fortunate to actually do the role. And from there, I just was hooked in working in the education programs. And every time I was kind of like encouraging Llewellyn Crane to uh, use me again in every production. So they kept on bringing me back. And eventually Llewellyn saw something in me that uh, I wasn't aware of, but she asked me if I would actually be the stage director for one of their elementary school programs. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and that was the start for me. And that was back in 97, 98 was probably my first production as a director. I have only known you as a stage director. So even hearing this whole story of like decades that leads up to that point, it's crazy. And also just you as... One is a child running around having the time of your life uh, in La Boheme. And then also you like testing makeup to make yourself look older. <laughs> those are great. You weren't rocking the facial hair at that point. Though. I was not no. good at facial hair, but I did no. grow a beard. It took me maybe two months to uh, actually yeah. have hair showing on my face at that point. That's a gift, you know. It's <laughs> Natalie, there is a... Uh, well, just the story that you told me in terms of how you got into just opera, but LA opera is, it's very interesting and slightly terrifying. Absolutely. Slightly terrifying is a good way to say it. My first experience with LA opera was in 2016 in the production of Macbeth that was um, on the main stage and we were witches, but we were kind of rat witches. And so we had hair, skin, unitards and flayed open backs and we were crawling around the stage being very creepy. Um, so that was my first time working with LA Opera and, and we scaled the walls, we climbed up and down them and it was really, I mean, as a, as a professional, it was one of the best professional experiences I'd had as a performer up until that point, um, both in the way that we were cared for here at the opera in the way that we were compensated and appreciated. And so I, after that production, I very much was interested in working with LA Opera again. So I kind of tried to keep myself open to opportunities that would come from it. And then getting involved with the Connects department, I have a very good friend and wonderful mentor, Leslie Stevens, who knows Eli very, very well. And when we were going to come back into the in-school programs, we couldn't do it without wearing masks. And that is particularly difficult for opera singers because it's all about the sound and the projection and that vocal experience. And also COVID is really dangerous for everyone, but especially for singers because it affects, you know, the respiratory system and for right, dancers right. too. But, you know, being very cautious of that. And dancers could perform with masks on um, sufficiently. And so Eli had the brilliant idea to start doing the Connects program with um, dancers instead. So from Leslie's recommendation to Eli, he gave me a call and said, do you want to choreograph a 45-minute ballet, basically? 
um, in place of the opera and work with our students. And actually, because you brought it up, it was Journey to Cordoba was the show that I first got involved right. in. Small so world. that actually is, go. I didn't know that fact. Full circle, guys. Full circle. <laughs> um, so he called me to do that show, and it was in, an incredible experience. I got to hire four dancers, and this was kind of just at the uh, resurgence of art and after pandemic life. So it was really great to get to hire four dancers and also bringing the dance into the schools was really special because the students really responded well to the visual kind of kinesthetic experience mm -hmm. of dancers. Um, and then I stayed on for the elementary school production that we did and then another high school production that we did. And now we're back to singing, which is great. <laughs> but it was a really wonderful ride. And then I also was the choreographer last year for um, Three Women of Jerusalem, which was yeah. our cathedral production last year. Um, and that was really an incredible experience to be a part of and really very quickly when we started talking we shared the same what would you call it's it a vibe. A, yeah it's a vibe we you know artistic vibe i guess is what you'd call it mm -hmm. and as we were talking about ideas and how we would connect the music and the storytelling but also understanding that the people that we're working with are amateurs these are high school students who are in a chemistry class or an english class or maybe a choir class mm -hmm. or they come from all different disciplines in the school and they are going to be shy they are going to be scared of trying to be on stage in front of peers in the audience and we're trying to talk about creating a vocabulary that they can handle uh, physically, but aesthetically, it's helping to tell a beautiful story to the audience. And we had a great two-hour meeting at a restaurant, just going through ideas, going through images. I felt like we had a great communication, and she could help me out, because sometimes... I, I could just go on and on and just really mention nothing about what we're really talking about. And she just looks at me and just then interrupts and gets the point over. She uses the arrow and just like hits the target while I'm making like big circles around the target. But I do always <laughs> say the, the big, because I'm in the... I'm listening to the big circles. I can find the arrow. Yeah. So I think that's always a big thing to important to remember with partnerships is usually one person has the full circle of the creative idea in their head and having someone who can see that, pick out what they're looking for and shoot the arrow is what makes a great partnership. Absolutely. Before I actually got into opera, I was actually a company manager in dance, and that started my love for just all things contemporary dance, modern dance, like everything. And seeing the in-school opera performance for the first time, which is, you know, to me, it's like I don't actually know what the in-school opera program looks like with singing. Love it with dancing. I think it's fantastic. Do you have, just in terms of like choreographing for dance or for musical theater, opera, are there any differences? Are there challenges to choreographing within opera and just in general for both of you, just planning within opera versus other uh, performing art mediums? Yeah. So I find that choreography for opera, the most interesting part about it is I think if I was 
more in the cathedral, I'm choreographing sections of the opera that are kind of built more as movement moments or mm -hmm. things that are needing zhuzh and needing movement. For the ISO performance where we had four very specific narrative characters and I was choreographing them like a narrative dancer yeah. where they each dance to an individual voice, that was a very interesting um, different experience for me. I'd say the hardest thing about choreographing for opera are the time signatures. <laughs> oh, oh, go on. <laughs> So, you know, uh, I'm a percussionist, like time signature. That's my jam. That's jam. Come on, yeah. Dancers count traditionally, right? We count in eights, which mm -hmm. is four, two bars, right? Yeah. Um, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now, I went to a wonderful college and we took music classes. So mm -hmm. I do know that you can count more than a or for <laughs> measure or meter and so i do but dancers still count that really bizarrely so we'll go like one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve one two three because as a movement phrase that makes sense it doesn't yeah. always make sense to go one two three four five six seven eight one two three four one two three that yeah. gets a little complex i've choreographed a lot for musical theater and that does exist in musical theater as well, right? It's always, I think, a, a great artist is someone who can translate between mediums, especially right. if you're going to be involved in something like opera or theater that takes so many departments to build it. Um, I think being able to translate, understand, and listen is what creates a really important collaborative experience. So when the community ensemble members are like, I think that's in, I'm like, oh yeah, I think you are correct, and how would you count it? Okay, I can count it like that for yeah. you. And um, I learned so much, too, from that experience. So that is the hardest thing, I think, about choreographing operas. Um, <laughs> just becoming uh, ingrained in the world of opera has been really wonderful. I mean, you're also talking about just the... There's kind of the difference of when we are working on the main stage or when we're presenting opera uh, here at the DCP... We're working entirely with professionals. The chorus, the orchestra, everyone is there. That is their actual job. Community opera, cathedral project, a lot of what we do within Connects is kind of, it's giving people the opportunity to know what that feeling is like. Um, I'm curious for both of you, we can start with Eli, but how do you guys balance the, one, the need to make sure that people are learning and that they are in an environment in which they can learn uh, about the importance of performing and how, you know, learning their roles, learning movement, all of these things, but also making them, how do you go about making them feel comfortable about the performance that they're going to do, making them feel prepared? Well, number one, having a great team of people is, is very important so that I don't feel like I'm going into this alone. Um, having Natalie, uh, who is very skilled in what she does uh, as part of a, a, a team is very important. But, you know, there is a group of people like Adam LeBeau who organizes all sorts of resources that they can access. So they have the the script or what we call the libretto they they have that uh as a resource so that they could follow along because what they a lot of them 
lawyers, uh, teachers, anybody who is involved in the community ensemble, they come from different disciplines. So we don't give them a score. That could be hieroglyphic to many of them. Mm -hmm. Um, We give them a libretto, and that way they could follow the story. And a lot of times when I'm giving a gesture or I'm giving an action that they are doing, they're following the reactions are coming from the script. They are coming from what is being said as opposed to waiting for this measure. Um, Yes, there is a particular measure that something is going to happen, but I'm impressing upon them to listen to the story, listen to the words, react to the words. And then we start to give them skills that, that the ensemble can use to make the stories clear. So in warm-ups, we are showing them how to have their stands, how how they stand, how they can shift their weight, what they can do with their arms. And then we start to incorporate these things and hopefully repeat these things so that they understand our vocabulary as we go onto the stage and we start to uniformly tell a story. So in Moses, one of the things that they have besides the script, they have a movement that everybody learns. And that is part of their um, vocabulary of who they are, where they come from. So in this story, we have a community of Israelites who become slaves. And then we have on the other side, Egyptians. Each one of them has a movement choreography, which we call a kata, so that if there is anybody who's afraid of the word choreography, they won't get afraid because it's just like, what is a kata? It's a movement form in martial arts. And so they're learning, okay, I'm learning a martial art move. Okay, fine. And they follow this, but it is part of their personality. And so we Everybody has this vocabulary, which they repeat and they learn throughout the story. So we say, okay, in this section, we are doing this kata in praise. We are doing this kata here in frustration. We are doing this kata on this side of the story in yearning. And we have all of these different things. And how would you move when you're yearning? How would you move when you're frustrated or angry? These gestures now become more percussive. And it's kind of like a shorthand that we can offer them so that they are expressing themselves in uh, different parts of the story. It is one way to help organize who they are throughout the story. Um, And that's one way that uh, we come together as choreographer and director to help movement tell the story in the different communities that are in this this piece. So um, it's it's just... uh, changing the perspective for the community so that they feel that they are involved in a way that they may not have thought they could be. That's amazing. And it's also like the, I mean, the form piece using something that is, you know, it's taught in other forms of taught in martial arts. 
not going in the traditional route of this is how we would stage this, but kind of thinking about a way that's more accessible. I think it's really important, especially for people who've not done anything like this or have done it, but have not done it a lot. It's really, really helpful. Exactly. Natalie, I feel like the, like, again, going back to the whole just dance piece, when I see people who are, if they are fully dancers, choreography, there's a lot of comfortability being just comfortable being in your own body and really knowing how to move um how how do you get people to be comfortable with with movement like that when they're not used to it yeah i think a big part of it is first of all kind of deconstructing their conceptions about what movement is Mm -hmm. i think uh, there's a choreographer i absolutely love um and he talks a lot about sort of uh, that dance is walking, you know, that, that dance is just walking in rhythm and timing and motion. And yeah, shout out Jermaine Spivey, he's incredible. Um, and he really like that thought to me opened up so much for me as an artist to really kind of know that everyone can walk in rhythm and time. And then also I've always seen movement Batmas and turns that stuff is all great but I think the most incredible part about dance is really the kind of release of emotions and the feeling of curving in on yourself is simply a contraction you know and people understand the feeling of curling in on themselves they don't necessarily know they're doing a contraction but that's what they're doing and so being able to kind of bring this idea of emotion and humanity into each and every dance move. I think dance is always emotional even when you're trying not to be emotional in it. That's a very, you know, me kind of thing. I think if you're reaching, reaches can mean very different things and how you reach. And I think people notice that stuff much more than they realize and they actually do it in their lives much more. So my biggest thing in approaching people who feel perhaps uncomfortable with movement is to let them know that they're already constantly in motion and that that movement or dance exists in their day-to-day life. You know, when they're putting something up on a shelf, that's a reach, you know. When they're picking up something from the floor, you know, or bending down to hug someone, those are all movements and that's all dance. And so I think when I can approach it that way, the fear kind of dissipates and... I think they realize like, oh, I don't have to put anything on top of myself. I can sort of move and that is enough. And so I think that's how I sort of access people's comfortability. And I I think it's pretty successful. I would have to say, yeah, it's, it's very successful. As you know, I have to get out of the way to let her lead in movement and dealing with high school kids or middle school kids, elementary school kids, everybody who is working with Natalie responds in a very positive way. And and they all of a sudden are creating from a very pedestrian way, they're creating beautiful movement. And I contribute um, all of that success directly to... Uh, Natalie's experience in this particular aesthetic of movement and it, it's very positive and it's it's very beautiful we really do have a dream team with you two <laughs> I, I, like I'm just so I'm, I'm so happy if all of the um, 
like the director combinations to have in Los Angeles that it is YouTube is helping us actually bring this uh, production to light. And part of that is like it's not just the the piece of like working with people who have who have not performed an opera before, but also like our whole our, our whole timeline, our schedule, and how this comes together. It's just not clear in any sort of traditional sense. Because we have these community pieces. You were saying, Natalie, that it's like it doesn't actually come together. You don't know what it looks like until it's like three days before. In this particular work, yeah. Um, everybody's working in a separate place. Everybody's preparing in different rooms at different times. And so we don't have the set up. We don't have um, the platforming up. Even if you show them a diagram or you show them a rendering of what it's going to be, it really doesn't sink into many people as to what's going on. You you might tell people, okay, this tape line here, this in signifies a seven-foot platform. Please don't pass this line or else you will fall seven feet down to the floor and it's marble. You might hurt yourself. And and it's it's hard for them to realize, oh, yeah, I really don't want to pass this. And and then it's just like, well, wait a minute. Uh, this is scene four. What's happening in scene one? What, what are we doing in scene one? Do we sing this? There's so much confusion that's going on, and we always have to promise them, just wait, this will all make sense by this date. When we put everything together at this date, then you could complain if you don't understand what's going on. Eli does such a brilliant job because the cathedral is such a specific space, and it's Mm -hmm. such a holy space, and I think honoring the fact that it's not a traditional proscenium theater and really incorporating it in that way. You know, the, normally you would sit kind of above the stage level and in the cathedral you're sitting level with it or higher yeah. than it. Yeah. <laughs> and our set designer, Alan Maroka, building these rafters for the set design. I have to say that Alan, every time I work with him, I learn so much from him and he created an incredible set design. Mm-hmm. I love his work, and I, I'm so blessed to actually have him as set designer in this particular production. Thank you both for being on the podcast. For all of you listening, you can catch us uh, perform Moses at the Cathedral of Our Lady of Angels on Saturday, March 11th at 3 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. And we'll see you again for another episode of Behind the Curtain. Don't miss Moses, Saturday, March 11th. Tickets are available now at LA Opera. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.